Welcome back to another episode of Tinfoil Hat. Tinfoil Hat. Tinfoil Hat. Come with me into the waters of conspiracy with Sam Tripoli. Sam Tripoli. Sam Tripoli. Sam Tripoli. Mr. Sam Tripoli. Sam Tripoli. With my friend Ryan Davis. Uh, hi, Ryan. We're like the first gay couple of conspiracy theories. I think it's beautiful, man. Out there, partner. Say that again. <laughs> it's some mystical, deep, dark realm crazy shit. Wake up, Aaron. There's reptile people everywhere. Hey, man, what's hey, the man. truth there, dog? Oh, what the fuck are you guys even talking about? Are you ready to get your mind blown? Revolution will be podcasted. Welcome to Tinfoil Hat, guys. I'm here uh, once again. Uh, Ryan was unable to make it, so uh, but welcome. Happy uh, 9-11 day. Hope you guys are enjoying it. Um, it's gonna, Pretty soon we'll be having Hallmark cards coming out on this day. It's going to become another national holiday. A lot of stuff is coming on, and I have some great guests to come on and talk about the whole event. Uh, every year we're going to do we're going to do a show on this date, so we thought it'd be a great time to have these guys on. Uh, before that, just want to get into uh, the shows that are coming up. Tinfoil Hat Comedy, that's right. Tinfoil Comedy is live at the Corner Comedy Club in Niagara Falls. Uh, Canada on the other side from Niagara Falls, America. So you can just come over to Buffalo, Niagara, grab your tickets now, go to cornercomedy.com and check it out. And then on top of that, October 3rd is the, uh, I'm going to be live at the Brea Improv, myself, George Perez, uh, the, the Smash Brothers, Mike Tully and Mike Catherwood will be joining me. Just go to uh, theimprov.com or brea.improv.com and grab your tickets now. The Patreon's cooking with gas. We're looking for a t-shirt guy. I know some of you guys are complaining about t-shirts. We're working on that. We're going to get that going. We appreciate all your support and love. And uh, so this is some big shows coming up. We hope you can join us. Uh, 9-11, it's here upon us again. We had a great uh, episode last year, so we decided to do another following episode. Uh, if you watched, um, John McCain's funeral, you realize that nobody has paid any price for the lies that have been perpetrated around 9-11 and the push of weapons of mass destruction and Iraq and all that bullshit. Nobody paid a price for that. They were all sitting there walking freely, you know, while our sons and daughters were sent to wars. And they came back hurt, crippled. Uh, the numbers, depending on who you talk to and the, the amount of uh, soldiers, ex-soldiers come back and, uh, you know, PD, PS, PTSDs, you know, and they end up committing suicide or anywhere from one a day to 22 a day, depending on who you're talking to. That's, that's that whether, whatever number you talk about, that's still too much. And uh, nobody talked about it. A lot of failures happened on that day. And I'm excited to bring the authors of a um, an amazing book that was put out. And the, it's, the book is The Watchdogs Didn't Bark, uh, the CIA, NSA, 
and the crimes of the war on terror. Uh, joining me here today are uh, two uh, amazing authors, and uh, I'm very excited to interview them. They were nice enough to come in and, you know, because this does involve 9-11, come talk about us. Please welcome to the show, John Duffy and Ray Nowacheski. Did I get it even close? Very close. That was spot on oh spot my on. god thank you guys for coming on i can't thank you guys enough because uh I just, you were supposed to be on in a couple weeks but i thought with the the nature of your book uh it was good to get it out right now and uh wow man thank you so much for coming on can you tell us a little bit about your book the watchdogs don't didn't bark a little bit and then we'll get into the whole stuff uh what's the book about what's the book about I think we describe it differently every time somebody asks us that. But, uh, you know, it's really about accountability. And you mentioned nobody paid a price. Um, whatever you do or don't believe about 9-11, I know there's a lot of different thoughts out there. The, the mere fact that nobody was ever fired is just sort of jaw-dropping. And I think maybe that single fact alone is what's kept us on this subject way past when we wanted to move on to some other things. Uh, so, I don't know, the book is, uh, it really follows a, a group of people whose careers happened inside CIA, NSA, and FBI from when they joined in the late 80s through to about 2015, and it tracks who rises and who falls and uh, what maybe that tells us about how the system really works versus maybe, you know, how we're told it works. So, yeah, I've read a little bit of it. It's, uh, man, if you love tinfoil hat, if you love conspiracies, uh, if you love all, if you love geopolitics, you love this book is for you, man. You know this book is for you. You know, fuck Carly B versus Nicki Minaj and that old stupid fight. You know the real deal is like the the information war that's going on right now, and who's fighting it and who's not fighting it. And this story is amazing. Uh, it basically breaks down how the intelligence agencies completely failed completely failed uh, to do anything to stop 9-11. And uh, uh, when we, you know, what you sent me is just like the secrecy and all that stuff. It's amazing. But let's start from the beginning. Where does this whole whole thing start? So you guys, on 9-11, where were you guys? We were young. Uh, At the time, we were both in college. We both went to film school, and that's where we met at uh, Columbia College, the film program in Chicago. Uh, And we had been friends. We had worked on several film projects together. And then, of course, it was weird because our school started a little late. Like a lot of other schools were already back in session. But Columbia didn't start till, you know, I think after 9-11. I'm pretty sure a few days after that year. Um, So I was laying in bed at my house when it happened. And then, you know, the whole thing went to fuck. But, you know, I think the important part was we were young at the time. We were ambitious at the time. I think we were like everyone, sort of overwhelmed uh, with what we were being told at the time. But we already had skeptical minds. Um, I don't think we are politically where we were back then, but we were very inquisitive back then, and we already had pretty hard anti-war stances. And I think we were kind of like, all right, maybe this Afghanistan one does have to happen. I don't know. But we definitely, when Iraq came around, we're like, all right, they're really taking a big fucking left turn on this. Um, but anyway, so yeah, we were young college age and, uh, and I don't know specifically what Ray was doing that day, but it ended up really shaping as two guys who were in film and, and who are dancing around playing with documentary film. It started and it, it became this 
real motivating uh, sort of subject matter for us. Ray, what were you up to? Do you remember where you were when you found out about 9-11? But it's a pretty standard story. I mean, I, I was getting ready for work in uh, school. Hadn't The semester hadn't restarted yet at Columbia College Chicago. So, um, yeah, I was getting ready for my job. Uh, I, got a, I hadn't watched TV that morning. Uh, phone rings. I answer it. It's my dad. He's like, are you watching TV? I said, no. Why? And he was very prescient. He was like, America's been attacked. We're at war. Your life just changed, which is just really weird that he had probably just gotten that news maybe like a minute before that. And, uh, and it did change. You know, it changed my life. It changed everybody's life. Oh, it, uh, it changed, changed everything. There, the, the pre nine eleven, post nine eleven, two different worlds, man. Two right. different hey. worlds. Right, so clearly. Yeah, uh, none of us have really liked the direction things have gone in since. So I think a lot of folks. I think that's one of the number one reasons a lot of folks continue to focus on it, even as it it ends up what seventeen years in the in the rear view. Um, it's sort of like what happened there and what direction we did. We to take and was that the right choice and um i'm less into these days the uh, so you mentioned conspiracy theories i've sort of spent my my like years to say like i'm not a conspiracy theorist yeah. what we do with, uh but, but I, maybe it's a lost cause <laughs> uh maybe we, we just kind of are uh but i think the the difference for for me is that we've sort of had a cause which is like which is to try to spotlight who did wrong or who lied about it, who covered up afterwards to protect themselves, and, you know, uh, who ended up in really high positions, who, you know, grew their power and continued to do more wrong because they weren't held accountable the first time. And sometimes I run into people who are very fascinated with the 9-11 issue, but they're kind of just like amateur Sherlock Holmeses who just sort of like really just want to get to the bottom of things because they're just fascinated by the story. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not, personally, I'm just, that's not what motivates me. I really want to and see, you know, some positive change come about by getting to the bottom of what really did kind of go wrong so that we, like the Jersey widows who first inspired us, who lost their husbands that day, uh, you know, we just believe very simply that if uh, we can figure out what actually went wrong, then you can, uh, you can fix the system, perhaps. Perhaps you can find ways to better safeguard against, uh, you know, these things happening in the future. Well, you know, for me, what you guys are doing right now is journalism. This is real journalism. And I don't know if you guys consider yourself journalists, but maybe you're journalist filmmakers. But what you're doing is what is important. And what we've seen now is kind of our, our mainstream media has now just basically become just an, or maybe it's more blatant than it's always been, but now it's more blatant, um, just an arm of the military industrial complex and the not questioning of anything and actually the helping to sell war and sell all these stuff and to, uh, you know, within seconds of the event, they already know who did it, all this stuff. You know, they find a passport of a, a, a guy like blocks away. I mean, there's an incineration of a plane and somehow the passport makes it. There's stuff like that just that doesn't make sense. But nobody questioned it. Nobody questioned it because it was such a traumatic event in time. And, you know, a lot of people feel like, oh, conspiracy theorists, it's this demon name. And a lot of that was done on purpose from the, the you know, the assassin of JFK. That's where the term basically got its life. The, 
the government used the term to make anybody who questioned the assassination of JFK, uh, you know, uh, crazy coup conspiracy theorists, which now we all know that, that what the conspiracy theorists were saying is true. And, you know, so I get it. But anytime you sit there and I talk to a lot, you know, I do Jimmy Dore show a lot. Uh, he's, uh, you know, he's very much into pl- politics and he's very weary of being called a conspiracy theorist. And that uh, that makes him nervous. But I'm like, you talk about people conspiring all the time. And it's just basically falling for the demonization of a phrase to get people not to question stuff. Um, so uh, nobody knows. Whether Watergate happened, if you believe in Watergate, they're, they're not like, oh, so you're a conspiracy theorist. They tend to use the term when they really mean, like if somebody says, oh, are you a conspiracy theorist? What they mean is like, oh, do you believe in unfounded, wacky theories? Yeah, so, right. The answer is and, not a conspiracy And just like any group of, you take any group, let's say Green Bay Packer fans, right? There's some cool Green Bay Packers. Most of the Packer fans are cool, cool people. There's going to be fringe whack jobs and name their kids after every fucking, you know, quarterback that played for the, for the, for the, for the, for the Green Bay Packers. And it just, there's always going to be fanatic whack jobs in any group. But the, and the problem is with this group is that they get labeled the crazy so that nobody wants to join them. And, you know, as I've done this podcast, I get more and more people who kind of whisper me, hey, I'm into conspiracy theories, but don't tell anybody that, you know, because they don't want to believe. And ju- just, I have to put it out there. I did name my daughter Brittany Favre, yeah. but, um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, um, but uh, I didn't, but I should have now that. It's a great you, name. It's a great Brittany name. Favre. And you can't. But anyway, um, what you said, you know, are you, that we're journalists. I think we think of ourselves as journalists or at least, you know, independent journalists or independent investigators or whatever. Um, I think we think of ourselves in that context, at least, you know, within these sort of projects that we, when we work on them. Um, I, it's tough because obviously right now there are certain wings of the media that have gone totally to shit. Right, uh, right. I think the, the big the big cable TV media is almost entirely gone to shit your cnn msnbc and fox news i mean they are just it's it's just like political party talking points and then they all just repeat them and it's it's depressing and even you'll look if you look at like the new york times like the op-ed sections and stuff you go like what the fuck is this trash but the problem is a lot of people want to say fuck it all of the corporate media is all bad but there's there are there are good journalists still out there working, and I imagine for them it's more maddening than it is even for us. But, I mean, it, our book would not exist if it weren't for people, you know, journalists who worked on their own projects in their own time, but also who wrote for The New Yorker, who wrote for The Washington Post, The New York Times, The Baltimore Sun, uh, you, know, uh, you know, a variety of people from a variety of different places who they did a lot of nitty-gritty work that we then built upon. So I would like people to at least know it's like, yes, you just have to be selective. It's like anything. You don't just look at one thing with a broad brush and say, it's all trash or it's all great and, and amazing. You got to be selective with the media and you know, just use your mind, use your, use your, your brain and, and see who's just spewing talking points and see who's actually out there digging up good stuff and there are some really good and it's mostly in print it's mostly the writers who are in print that are still doing really good work yeah for sure and you know it's and and there's i mean like a lot of people want to shit on youtube 
But there's a lot of people who work very hard and do a lot of research and to put out a, a YouTube video. Now, equally, there are some crazy YouTube people out there. And again, it's called use common sense. You know, for me, it's like, and some people, you know, it's conspiracy podcast. There's some people tell you that most of history is a lie. It was written by the winners and made them to sound well, you know, that they were all good people. And, you know, there's a manipulation of the power, the powerful manipulate, you know, the, the masses to, to, you know, to get into, uh, to follow along the lines of, uh, what makes them money and stuff like that, you know? So there's, you know, uh, you could apply that to anything. I think you should always use common sense. You should study what you know of history and say, does this make sense? That what, what they're telling, does this fit into patterns? I find a lot of times it, it doesn't. When I, when I follow something on the mainstream media and, you know, I, find, I, go, I, I ask myself, who does this information benefit? And it, it just happens a lot. I mean, with the, the, the promotion of uh, weapons of mass destruction to uh, Russiagate right now, you know, you know, the right fell for the weapons of mass destruction and the left is falling for Russiagate right now. And it's all, you know, when, when the Clintons deregulated the media and they got down to five people owning everything, you know, it's just how it goes. You don't buy all that media if you don't want to control the message. Now, is everybody in on it? I don't think so. But, I, you know, when you see the Sinclair vid- media video come out where, like, 30 different stations have the exact same talking points, you know, that, that lets you know something. You know, back in the day before the Clintons, what, like, like 90 companies owned 90% of the media? It was, it was uh, you know, it was a little different back then. But yeah. I can a really good example of what you're talking about uh, because, you know, in 2011 – we essentially deduced the name of this alleged human rights abuser within the CIA, and she. Okay, I, w- I want to get into that. I, ju- I, I just want I want to set this up so they can know because that story is insane to me. Yeah, you, you guys fact, are doing. Go on. Well, that's where I was going with it. Is you, you know, even all these years later, it still has barely reached the mainstream, even though you know it's it clearly of national relevance and. and and, you know, has been reported by everyone from us to now Glenn Greenwald, and it's, yet still, it's crazy, right? It is crazy how this information is out there, yet it does not make it. And it's like I try to tell people that, like, you know, when you try to bring information to people, okay, about what you think is really going on, you've done your research, you're like, okay, I do believe this is happening. I can present it to people. And you present them all these different, and it's from all these different sources. If it's not ABC, NBC, CBS, or, you know, with the conservative people, Fox, um, they don't want to believe it. If you go, hey, dude, here's this amazing article in the website, it's called Hang the Bankers. They'll be like, oh, this sounds reputable. And it's just like, it's just done on purpose. Oh, and you asked, you asked like how our story started. I mean, that was the first thing we... Post-college, you know, I think we both originally got into film school to do, quote-unquote, real movies. Uh, those proved to be a lot more expensive, so we decided to make a documentary. And, uh, and, one, of the, and one of the first subjects was we wanted to know why we were— there was something called the um, History Commons, and there was a guy named Paul Thompson who had been in the Esquire Genius issue, and he collected, like, 10,000 mainstream news stories, but he'd, like, pulled all the pertinent facts and quotes out of them and then reordered them into a chronological timeline. So instead of any editorializing, you could just kind of like see the list of facts. And when you when he did it that way with the 9-11 topic or the war on terror, what you would discover was that um, 
the narratives we were seeing on the nightly news that everybody was sort of like soaking up into their consciousness were not the same. They didn't match up to sort of the narratives of just the chronological facts as dissected from these 10,000 news articles. So we went out to D.C. and New York originally to talk with people like at the time Walter Cronkite was still alive. He did an interview. You know, uh, we went to Len Downey, the head of The Washington Post, interviewed him, blah, blah, blah. And we were asking that, you know, kind of that question. We were focused on the idea of like, you know, Len Downey would defend himself and say, well, a lot of this stuff you're talking about, we have reported it. It's like, yeah, but reporting it once is not the same as turning it into like a media narrative that like, the, you know, that everybody has heard about and understand this is important. And only the big news outlets can do that. They right. have the ability to do that. And if they don't do it, then like you said, I mean, I can like post on Facebook about this woman, Alfreda Bukowski, who we discovered. <laughs> and my own friends will kind of go, you know, yeah, have another one, Rummy. You know what I mean? Like, uh, so it's pointless because they'll believe, essentially, they'll believe the lack of coverage by MSNBC, CBS, and Fox, you know, and, and NBC and the rest of the guys uh, over what we might say with our with our, our crazy like story in Gawker or something like that. And, and we call those people goldfish on the show. They're goldfish because they only remember what's in front of them, right? So they, they're, they, they, they got their little fishbowl and they swim around it and whatever's in front of them is the only thing they remember. They don't remember way back, like, no, you know, with the death of John McCain and all these people going to this funeral and everybody just try and convince me the Candyman George Bush is a great guy. You know, <laughs> you know, it's it's unbelievable to me how people just forget, and then they get played like a they, they like, dude. The media has everybody down to like they can play them like a guitar, and they can make them wail when they want to, and just all of a sudden this issue becomes the biggest issue in the world, and everybody's losing their skull. And then once the media doesn't play anymore, basically telling you it's not an issue, it goes away, yeah. like trans in the military like that you would think that was the end of days coming up that thing was i mean every humongous actor was tweeting about it like i live in la there's like 12 of them it's like people were acting like it was the end of fucking days but that became a huge issue and everybody's tweeting about and then two days later couldn't hear anything on it but just just for the sake of conflict just to disagree with you a little bit here and not to sound pretentious but like I spent the last five years out in New York City. I was working for a two-time Oscar-winning documentary filmmaker. She ran in a lot of semi-elite circles, so I got kind of introduced to a lot of these folks. Plus, you know, you throw a rock or you go have a drink in New York, you end up talking to some guy who works for, you know, the New York Times or whoever, right? And, like, it wasn't – I didn't get the sense that this was, like, from on high, these like this cabal of, like, eight people are telling everybody what to tweet or report about. It's just, like – I mean, in the case of Russiagate – I think people were actually freaked out because they found this guy so repugnant they couldn't figure out how it was that he won. They saw right. him as an I get that. What he might grow into. Right. And they started looking harder than they've ever looked at anybody for dirt, right? And and somebody laid down a narrative, which I got to admit, I'm on the fence about. I don't know if it's true or not. I'll be really interested to see what uh, I understand the facts are are not into the uh, you know to, to the level that a lot of people would like on the on the Russia Gate, but I, I feel like there's a lot of smoke there, and I am no fan of Trump myself. So anyway, we don't have to get into the, the weeds of like blue versus red, but no, I'm cool with that. That's dude. Again, like you know, everybody's allowed to have their their own opinion on everything, you know, and it's totally fine with that. And you know, when you think of 9/11 and after 9/11 with the weapons of mass destruction and 
when you're like, well, these people are saying one thing, the, the, the UN, uh, you know, the people go in there and look, they say there's nothing there. And then people just try to come up with scenarios to make it work. And it's fine. And we can disagree on Russian gate and all that. And that's, that's totally fine. But what I find is this fevered pitch that, the, the media is pushing right now when poll show after poll after poll that like Russia gate and Russia scare is not what they're worried about right now. You know, po- you know like the numbers are so fucking low on like, is this an important uh, issue to you? And most people are like, no, I've moved on. It is what it is. And, but yet, you know, going back to where you don't hear the stories, like, you know, we got the Awam tri- the Awam brothers trial and, you know, People said, oh, this big conspiracy thing that everyone's bringing up. And they got, all they got was, uh, banking fraud. And, but nobody tell, the news never told anybody that Debbie Wasserman Schultz, a key figure in this trial, she was the one who employed the Awan brothers. Uh, the prosecutor was her brother. The brother was prosecuting the fucking criminals and it was just like of course they didn't get anything and like but the media doesn't tell you any of that and then therefore nobody thinks it's anything because they put themselves in the position of these 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 people like uh rachel maddow's or whoever you want to say and they would go if i was doing it i would be telling all the facts well they're not you they i mean it's just my opinion that the mainstream media has become a mouthpiece of the war machine what i think you're, you're absolutely right that the mainstream media is a mouthpiece of the war machine. Um, it's funded by military contractors, right? But um, I think one thing we really learned across the time that we were doing research uh, on our previous projects and then this one, because a lot of what we've done is sort of also media criticism. If you look at our documentary film, Press for Truth, there's a real media criticism angle to it. And like Ray said, we went into this like okay we're gonna use 9-11 as the case study but we want to know like how is it that a narrative becomes the narrative and i there's an outside perception it's easy to just think like okay the guys from the corporation hand out the marching orders and everyone just goes all right these are the marching orders i'm getting paid a lot so i'll just say that there's probably some of that but i think the key thing that like at least really dawned on me was that You wouldn't work for that news media outlet if you didn't already believe the shit they wanted you to say. You don't get in the room. Like, it's not like they have to strong arm people at Fox to have this heavily pro right wing agenda. You don't get hired at Fox if you don't have a heavily right wing agenda. So all the kids coming out of the media, you know, the media schools or, you know, the colleges with the journalism degrees who are applying for these jobs and getting the internships like you don't get filtered up into the thing. And you know, in the machine, unless they're like, oh, this one's on the team. So, yeah, they're going to throw them some money. For and when sure. They come down with, when they throw them the talking points in the morning and they say, this is how we're spinning, blowing up a bus full of kids. They don't read that and go, this is abhorrent. My conscience, I can't possibly say this. They go, yeah, that, that looks good. That makes sense. I, I see that. You I, know. Could, I totally agree. 100 percent. You know, 100 percent. For sure. I worked, I worked for a little while on uh, the Vice HBO show as a producer and like. That would be a good, uh, for instance, there where, you know, I, I, I only really saw Shane Smith when I was going to the bathroom because the line to the bathroom was right near where the glass was for his office. But we uh, everybody who worked there was already there because they kind of liked what Shane had put together. They kind of got what a vice segment covered and what it didn't cover. And when we were pitching segments, we would pitch within that arena. So we wouldn't tend to, you know, 
Gordon's going to pitch something that was that was outside that sounded like it would belong on Fox News, we'd pitch a Vice segment. For you know, sure, like- for sure, for sure. Like I, that's why you know we pick our paths we go down because you know that you can apply it to stand up comedy. It's like I'm a dick joke comic. I love. <laughs> multi-layered fucking uh, dick jokes that's what i enjoy doing so i don't try to do the co- the comedy will get you on the on the cruise ships and all that stuff where these guys make a lot of money that's just not for me and that's i'm sure rachel meadows uh leans to the left and i'm sure that uh whoever's on fox news that we want to talk about i don't even know who's on fox news but they would le- you know they lean that way and they do believe in that's why they're able to sell it more and that's why they, they play ball, the initiations. You can even get into more political stuff about that. But I want to get into uh, what you guys do because the story is I- I- incredible. It starts with you guys investigating this, and then you wanted turning into a podcast. Did I get that right? You guys were thinking about doing like a uh, uh, serial-type podcast, a documentary podcast. Yeah, but this gets back to the whole media thing because uh, we, we got a small amount of funding for me essentially to come out to New York and work with this guy, Rory O'Connor, who had started something called Global Vision Production Company in Manhattan that had been operating for like 15 years. And and we got a little bit of funding to basically put together a proposal that would have made this into a documentary that would have gotten to the bottom of this back in like 2008. Uh, and I was working, we were working with Duffy on it. And uh and we shopped it around to everybody who funds these things. And what we, get, what we kept getting told at the time in 08 was, you know, nobody's interested in 9-11, for one thing. Um, and this was still a little too out in, like, cuckoo bananas land, as they saw it, for them to, for them to want to go to. Which is so funny, because now we've written this book that's about, like, the war on terror and the war on whistleblowers and accountability, and I don't even want to talk about 9-11, and it's all anybody <laughs> wants to focus on. So the, the the thing is completely flipped. But at the time, uh, yeah, we tried to get it made. And so what we did was we had gone out there, and we along the way we'd been doing, like, uh, phone interviews with people who worked in the government, people who'd worked in the White House, like big people who'd worked counter-terror who were on the front lines of trying to stop al-Qaeda in the years ahead of 9-11 and, and after. And they were all telling us about some really messed up stuff. And we felt this sort of obligation after enough time had gone by when we couldn't get a film funded, like we wanted to do it in a different way. So why not just take the audio? That's cheap. We could cut it together into kind of like a true crime narrative, like a serial before serial, and tell these tell this story. And that that was that was the the plan, and then we got threatened by. Uh, we tried to do our due diligence with the CIA, and that was what look at the- dude. You are what every conspiracy theorist is. is just, their giant fear. I mean, their giant fear is getting suicided, and the fact that you guys were like kind of going <laughs> and talking to the CIA and them shooting back. That's. That scares me. That, that That's balls, dude. And that's why I respect the fuck out of what you guys... Because that, to me, is what you're supposed to do. And, like, you well, know... Go on. It's it's funny because we just... We were trying to be good journalists. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. So we had all these people telling us all this stuff. And we've been putting things together. And we've been doing a lot of research into public records. And trying to grab names. And, you know, put the whole put the whole puzzle together. And they're like, all right. We basically have a production. We have, we have a storyline. We can lay it out. We have our... Our, our general hypothesis and plot. But to be good journalists, we should present this to the people who are sort of being accused and give them an opportunity to explain the situation, right? We should be like, okay, like George Tennant. Well, why, why didn't you say that? You know, or, or whatever. For so, sure. 
So we con- they have a media office. We contact their media office with this sort of general like, all right, we're going to be releasing this this podcast. We're going to be naming these individuals and we're going to be making some of these claims. And would you like a chance to respond? Oh, and, then it, and then it was, which, so we ahead, right? get an email from some randos naming some of their agents. <laughs> <laughs> this is the, the, the equivalent of political jackass. Like when you saw jackass do these crazy stunts and you're like, oh, dude, they're nuts. That, they're, no, nobody's that crazy to do that shit. And then you guys, you guys are fucking like, calling, hey, CIA, we're going to talk about this stuff. You want to come on our podcast? Like that to me <laughs> is like insane. You know, we have a saying on this show that the uh, the the revolution will be podcasted, and that is basically what you guys are doing. You guys are taking truth to power, and you guys are shedding light on something that needs to be. Sh- Man, that's some ballsy ass shit, dude. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I think we were just dumb. <laughs> I think I think we thought there was a shot that they they might actually interview with us because we'd gotten enough. You know, for instance, the month before we got the threat, um, we'd been sitting on that. So, uh, you know, your audience doesn't know because they haven't read the book. But basically, in 2009, we sat down with Richard Clark, who was the top guy for counterterror. It didn't get any higher than him anywhere in the U.S. government. He had been appointed to that to the uh, White House counterterrorism position under Clinton, and then it continued, one of only two people really to continue from Clinton to Bush. And had been there that whole time through to 9-11, and then, you know, even uh, a year plus after until he finally, you know, had left. And we got, went and talked with him in 09, and he did something that most former officials are not going to do, which was that he, he used some really specific legalistic language. He, he, he accused George Tenet and a number of people... George Tenet being the former CIA director at the time of 9-11 and the Iraq war and, and so on, uh, him and a number of people who worked for him of, of quote-unquote malfeasance and misfeasance in deliberately, he was convinced, deliberately withholding uh, information about two of the 9-11 hijackers for a year and a half prior to, including, including at a meeting that happened at the White House that Clark had been begging for. Uh, for the entire Bush administration's, you know, first term up to that point from January through September. And he finally got his meeting on terrorism September 4th. And George Tenet's there. And we now know, and it's well documented in the book, uh, that Tenet was aware at that time of the two hijackers, the future hijackers that were in the U.S., as well as uh, the guy, uh, Zacharias Moussaoui, who had been, you know, uh, detained in, in Minneapolis while trying to learn to fly. But and not land, about- not land, just learn to fly, right? That part actually wasn't true. Really? Yeah, that, that just got spun out of the rumor mill. I don't think he actually said that. I have to go back and check that, but I don't think that's actually true. All right, all right. But he was, he was suspicious as fuck for a lot of other reasons. Well, I mean, like, so uh, were they even great pilots, right? Were they even great pilots? I don't even think they were. I, I don't even think they got any kind of gold stars in pilot class. I don't think they... Uh, I think that some of that stuff actually serves the there's like there's the stuff they're really afraid of coming out because they, they've been caught red handed withholding this information. And we can go into Richard Clark's idea on why they withheld it. And then there's all these little things floating around it that sort of distract you and you, you end up just going, well, that's weird. That's all really weird. Where When I think you should really focus in razor sharp on the story of exactly what was withheld by these specific people at CIA and NSA, because we, we got the goods, man. Like we, we can see from the documents and the, uh, the, the, you know, inspector generals that went back and looked at their computers, 
who, who accessed what. And the thing that had caused Richard Clark to flip out was when the executive summary of the CIA Inspector General's report was finally released one summer after a couple of uh, senators finally pushed hard for it after it had been withheld for a few years. And Richard Clark had always believed that it was just, uh, as he put it to us, like a couple low-level CIA people who found out that these hijackers had arrived in the U.S. And, and hadn't understood the significance. And he reads in the Inspector General's report that the IG has gone back and looked at who accessed it at CIA, this information, and found that 50 to 60 people working at CIA, almost all of them, the majority of them, filling this one office called Alex Station, the bin Laden office. Ah, uh, they were the ones who had all read this. So, so Clark flips out and he tells us this in 09. He goes, he says, I believe Rich, you know, George Tennant, my former friend, and a number of the people who worked for him deliberately withheld this from us. And he, and he stated his theory why. And he called it malfeasance and misfeasance. And that's just not something that generally someone at his level would do against somebody at George Tennant's level. He knew what he was doing. And that's why we were so shocked sitting in the room with him, hearing him say it and lay it all out for us. And that's how we knew this wasn't a conspiracy theory like the type that you might hear on Alex Jones, whatever you may think of him. This was coming from the guy who ran counterterror at the Clinton and Bush White House. So we sat up, you know? Did he, ever, did he ever say to you what he thought happened? How deep it went? Um, what he said to us was, th- what he said is that basically... And people can watch this. We have a video. It's on YouTube that we released back in 2009 uh, where we cut together Richard Clark's interview with us. It's about 10 minutes long. We cut it in with some stills and uh, and make it sort of like a little mini teaser doc. So you, you can watch what he says. And yes, it's a little edited down. and You get more quotes in the book we just released. We uh, we have a little more of what he specifically told us. But he he says very clearly that he is entering into the realm of uh, conjecture and hypothesis. So he's he's saying, I can't prove this, but the facts that I have have really only one explanation that makes sense to him. And that is that when the CIA noticed that these Al-Qaeda dudes were going to meet up in Malaysia right around the time of the millennium to have a little terror powwow to make some plans for you know new things they were going to get into... The CIA sees this, they monitor it, and they notice uh, by breaking into the hotel room of one of these guys, Khalid Amidar travels through Dubai on his way to Malaysia. CIA sends some people to bust into his hotel room. They get his passport. It's got a US visa in it. They send a copy of that back to HQ, to Alex Station. And so basically, Clark's theory is like, all right, the CIA has noticed this. They see that some of these guys are going to be coming to the US after this summit in Malaysia. And that these people at Alex Station, they want the goods on Al-Qaeda. They want to flip them, ostensibly. They want to they turn these guys. But they can't do that uh, domestically because they're not supposed to operate domestically. The CIA is not supposed to operate domestically. Flip so that they're information. They are spies, after all. So that's what they do. They recruit people to feed them information so they know what's coming, right? That, yeah, so... so so they see that they're coming and they realize that if they get to the country and and law enforcement finds out about it, law enforcement might try to either get informants in with them or just straight up arrest them. And that law enforcement would, would be the FBI. So they realize they got to keep the FBI out of the loop because the FBI will fuck it up. 
They also recognize, hey, <laughs> can't send a couple Irish and Italian or whatever dudes from CIA down to be like, golly, what's up, baby? Right, 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 right. So, so they work through Saudi proxies and go, all right, we'll get these dudes from Saudi intel to run into them in uh, in in California. They'll buddy up. They'll they'll bring them into the community, and then we'll see where it goes from there. Now it it gets you know crazier from there because that's the beginning of the year uh, 2000 basically, and so there's this 18 month window essentially or whatever till till 9/11 where a lot where a lot happens. But yeah, that's that's sort of the crux of Clark's hypothesis that the CIA wanted they wanted a chance to go in and get these guys and to flip them and to use them in whatever way this the, it would, the CIA would find it uh, profitable to use them. Now, well, Sam, you, I think got interesting. Tennant, uh, well, George Tennant had was well known to have close connections with uh, with a number of high level Saudi Arabian officials, but for uh, sure. What about John Brennan? Was like. BFFs with those guys, right? Didn't even even go over there and uh, uh, like there there's rumors that he was invited to um, uh, Mecca, which is like you know we've talked about this a thousand times on the show where you you know you're not unless you're Muslim you're not allowed to Mecca unless the royal family invites you. So th- there's all that thing that he was out there actually for a little while. John Brennan was a high level official work for George Tenet during this period, and he had previously been uh, chief of station in Saudi Arabia. So there's no question that, like, if an op did take place to try to recruit these guys that blew up in the CIA's face and that they hit it afterwards, it seems very likely that John Brennan would have been aware of that, if not somewhat involved. Yeah. Which- yeah. It's just like, it's it's like that John, John Brennan drives me fucking nuts. So uh, that- frankly, saying out loud because i don't really want to give trump more like ammunition to to like sort of spew misinformation and use it to further divide us you know what i'm saying but it's probably the truth yeah so, there you go. <laughs> listen i i i can you listen man i i'm somebody who anybody who makes it to that office i i say you should question them every time i don't care if you if it's santa claus if Santa Claus is the president, you should question everything because that's the off. The office itself is inherently, you know, a, I mean, it's a dark art. You're in head of the the world police organization. So it's my opinion. You should question everything. I, I personally think if truth came out about John Brennan, we would he wouldn't be allowed to walk down the street. Uh, I personally believe that there is, an, and it's not uh, ours, a Republican or Democrat thing. I think once you get in there uh, at the highest levels, it's uh, pro wrestling, and uh, they all work for the same masters. That's my, that's just my opinion. Uh, but I think, well, it, go on. He was a big advocate and overseer of the drones program, so there's no question he's got you know a lot of you know civilian blood on his hands. No one for has to be a con- sure. For sure. So this Alex Station unit, they were in charge of counterterrorism uh, to make sure, you know, to make sure either they don't get to the U.S. or they don't attack the U.S., right? So you put out uh, this. Okay, go on. Uh, just uh, Alex Station was specifically dedicated to Osama bin Laden and his network. Okay. There, was a, there, there was the counterterror cent, uh, Counterterrorism Center, uh, the CTC, and then there were like other offices under that. Alec was dedicated to bin Laden and the Al-Qaeda network. 
it was only it was only like 50 people is important to understand too and it was started by this kind of like wacky dude that that even for the cia other cia people thought like something's weird about that guy his name was mike scheuer and he and they also noticed that he staffed you know he could have staffed his office with all kinds of different people but he staffed him entirely with very young women who were almost entirely analysts who had no field experience so they were all they all became super loyal to him because he was one of the only managers they'd ever really worked for or known. And he was a very intense guy. And the rest of the CIA, most of them kind of ignored this office, didn't think what they were warning about was anything to worry about. So they were largely ignored. But the people who were aware of them kind of thought they were a little weird. So at what point do you guys find out about this woman named Elfrida Francis? How do you pronounce her last name? Bukowski. Bukowski. What an intro. Man, that is a name and a half. I've never. Um, Afrida. That's such a. That's such it's, a I think it's Alfreda. Alfreda. But, um, whatever. Like yeah. the sauce. Yeah, I got. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, it's, it, she's a red sauce. Um, <laughs> you do, so you find out about her if you focus on the 9-11 story or even the story kind of following after that into torture and drones. If you read media reports or even some books like uh, Jane Meyer's Dark Side, this is a person who gets mentioned sort of over and over again, whether in uh, government reports about 9-11 or into certain journalistic uh, deep dives into the topic. She's a person who gets mentioned over and over again, but never strung together. They're always using a code name for her or just a description. Uh, I think Jane Meyer was... Ended up writing about her using the, her middle name, just Francis. Um, uh, redhead only in, in, in that. She wrote Redhead. Who, wrote, who, who used the middle name Francis? Someone did. Adam Goldman and Matt Apuzzo, who've gone on to the New York Times and Washington Post, they were writing for the Associated Press at the time. Yeah. yeah. So it, it, what was so interesting about her is that if you read all of this stuff as a well-informed citizen, you might say like, oh, this person over here at Alex Station lied about passing information to the FBI. This person over here lied to Congress about torture. This person over here renditioned a totally innocent man and had him tortured for a fucking month. Like, and you would, you would never know, oh, this is all the same person. Yeah, um, she sounds like a Kaiser Sose. Like, until <laughs> you knew her, you just thought there was this myth of this person that was yes. just going around doing all this evil shit. And what I find so interesting, in particular the CIA, is like, you know, I, I believe in, di- I'm, a, I'm into diversity. I, I, you know, one of the things I love about living in the United States is the, the melting pot that we have. Uh, I do think we have a problem with identity politics. Like, it, you know, if you think that some group is entirely, if you think like a group, uh, like, uh uh-uh, uh, African Americans, or or gay. if you think that whole group is evil, we 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 think that's disgusting in this day and age. You know, to generalize about a group like that is pretty disgusting. But I think what is really dangerous as well is to automatically think a group of people is automatically all good. 
I mean, you know, yeah. and you see that a lot in politics where they're like, oh, if we have more women in office, you know, every, uh, corruption would be gone. I go, well, I mean, I, money's money, dude. And I don't care what your genitalia is or your gender. And in this day and age, there's 37 genders. But whatever your gender is, uh, that gender likes money. They all like money. So you can put anybody you want, whether it's a white guy from Arkansas or a gay Asian from San Francisco or whoever you want in the office. Uh, I want the best of bet, but just know when the money comes, the, the corruption's all going to be the same. That's just my opinion, you know. But this whole thing with these, what we find in CIA is that there's actually some women who are actually involved in some pretty dark ass shit. Oh and, yeah, and actually, a good a good point about that is so one of our people that we interviewed for the book is uh, former CIA officer John Kiriakou. And he tells us very clearly, we talked a lot about the recruitment process. How do you get into the CIA? You know, and one of the things they very much are looking for are sociopaths. And, for sure, dude. And like, this is, this is not, this is unapologetically. Now they don't, they try to not cross the line into psychopaths because a psychopath, according to them, can beat the lie detector and can go rogue a little more easily. But a sociopath can do all the things they need to do as an officer They, they and uh, in all the circumstances where they believe it's appropriate for them to lie or commit a crime, sociopath has no problem doing that. Now, if you, like I said with the media, you don't get in the fucking room if you're not already on the team. Yeah. So the people who get tapped to join the CIA at first, they're finding these you know, young students at, at universities, at big universities, and they're saying like, They've seen what they've written. They've seen their dissertations. They've seen, you know, they've they've heard their opinions. They go, all right, this kid's on the fucking team. He's on Team USA and Team Capitalism all day long. And then when you get to the interview process, they go, all right, do we have a real sociopath here? Ah, exactly. What's their family history? So interesting. This person's likely to be damaged in this way. Damaged just enough. Right. That they'll be they'll be willing to commit crimes, which is a key difference, by the way, between CIA and FBI. We had a guy, uh, Mark Rossini, who was an FBI agent, lifelong, you know, dedicated FBI guy. And, and I don't want to carry water for the FBI again. Not all, like they're not all good and they're not all bad. For sure. Like, but they, but the, but the thing about the FBI is they do get it pounded through their head that there's like a constitution. And at the end of the day, they're going to need to be able to make a case in open court that can put somebody away. So if they're going to do some shady stuff, they better make sure it's really like under the table, because if it shows up in court, it's going to undermine their case. CIA, you work over there. He got embedded at the CIA. It's a completely different story. They, As he put it, they got no concept of the Constitution or anything else. They, it's essentially get it done. So they, they almost they're sort of the illegal arm of the U.S. government. They're where the government turns when they need some stuff done. That isn't on the up and up. Right. And so you need people who are willing to go there for God and country. And they uh, they've they've got a system down to recruit those folks. And there (laughs) and there there has to be this level of brainwashing. Well, it's it's basically the initiation. You you hear it a lot. If you ever read Bill Cooper's uh, The Pale White Horse book, uh, you know, it's the initiation. And if you don't pass an initiation, 
no matter what you do after that, you can't advance to certain things when you, if you don't show you play ball at that moment. And everybody plays ball. And, you know, there's this famous meeting that could be urban legend about how all the heads of the uh, record labels were put together uh, in a meeting and they were told that all their companies have invested heavily into privatized prisons and that they're going to push uh, gangster rap to uh, push a certain type of lifestyle that would help these privatized prisons. And, you know, some people want to believe it, some people don't. And, you know, whenever you bring that story up, someone goes, why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you say something at that? And because you don't get to that meeting if you ask that question. You, you know, you're at that place, you're a go, what, yes, 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 yes. You're a yes man and you do it. You don't question the motive, it's just do it. Interesting that you mentioned that because I started out saying that the book was about accountability, right? And that kind of maybe some of your listeners go uh, or your, your viewers go accountability. That you know that sounds boring. It's not boring. It's actually at the heart of what you're talking about because one of the things that never made sense to us from the beginning is you start finding out names of people, you start realizing who they are, and then you realize that they were involved in the 9/11 withholding, right? Okay, so they made a mistake. They screwed up. They thought they were doing something. It turned out to be something else. But afterwards, when it kills 3,000 people, there's got to be folks at the CIA, including George Tenet, who do find out about this. And we documented in the book. A couple months later, they officially find out. Whether he knew all along, I don't know. But once they find out, you know, you're the manager of any company. You got people working for you, I'm sure, Sam, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> That they accidentally like, you know, lit the office on fire. I think you're gonna like talk. You're gonna have a conversation. You're gonna find out how that went down. Yeah. If it turns out matches and gasoline, then you're probably gonna tell him, "Look, I like you, but you gotta go. You got bad judgment." And that never happens with these people who are playing with matches and gasoline at the CIA. And then they go on to screw up again. And then they go on to screw up again. And the weird thing is that the ones who screw up over and over again in really damaging ways somehow rise meteorically. And the ones who go, hey, what's going on here? I do my job in a really good way, in a really professional way, you know? And, and I'm like, uh, I'm trying to tell people that this lady's a screw-up. You should fire her. You should not keep her going again. And then those guys end up targeted for prosecution. Yeah. On some, you know, some charge emerges, and they get the book thrown at them. And this other lady ends up with her identity protected from guys like us with, you know, a CIA, you know, a spokesperson calling us to tell us we might be violating the law by running a story on it. I don't know. It is. No, it is 100 percent. I, I, I believe 9-11 was darker than maybe you might be alluding to, but that's a different show. I think it's uh, I think it's very, very, very dark. And it's a lot of crazy. I mean, like George Tenet was a big part of the whole push to. um to uh, uh, the weapons of mass destruction. He's yelling about slam dunks and all that shit. I, I think this was a, a, plan, a, a larger plan. But I want to get back to you guys basically putting out this podcast. We're about to put a podcast. You guys were nice enough to tell the CIA you were about to do it. And they hit you back and told you you were, might be violating laws. Uh, what, what law did they tell you? I have in front of me the Intelligence Identity Protection Act. Is that a real law? Yes. It's and it's funny because at the time I Googled it, <laughs> I was like, all right, let's uh, let's see specifically what this says. And, you know, we lay it out in the book because we actually put in the book our email chain at that time, our oh shit email chain. Where we're like, oh, fuck. Um, yeah. And 
and I and I Google it and I look at the, the, the text and it's basically a law that is written to uh, refer to people who have um, who have access to classified information. So if you work for the government and you have classified clearance uh, and then you start going and spilling the beans about the identities of covert agents to somebody else, that's the crime. And it's not supposed to be people who like stumble upon the identity of a non-covert agent through public documents and then put it in a media story. Yeah. And there's there's a little bit of vague text in the law where it's like if through the you know the course of some patterns of activities you come it's and you know anytime like they do that with law where they have that little fine print real vague section where they go I can apply that to anything. And so we kind of looked at that like maybe but Mostly it was like, no, this is clearly intended for people. If you work at the CIA and you fucking start taking money from Moscow to out your fucking agents or to Beijing and you start outing your fellow agents. Oh, I got this, that. that. Then you're supposed to. This is the law that would apply to you to, to prosecute you, not to a couple of guys, you know, who are doing independent research. Right, right, right. Because you're just this is basic freedom of the press. You know, the. Yes. That's basically the right to like, that's what freedom of the press, freedom of speech. That's what that's all about is like the government, government not being able to throw you in jail because you said something they don't like. Yes. They didn't even have that law until the, the Reagan era. So this was not even something that goes back all the way to the creation of the CIA, which, by the way, is not that old. We got by without it prior to 1947. Maybe we yeah. can get by with it. For sure. Once upon a time, it was their job to protect their secrets. They would classify certain things top secret, and the people that worked there weren't supposed to spill. And if they did, then, okay, maybe they could go after them because they had agreed to work there. But you're right. Journalists have every right to report anything that's true, period. But in particular, stuff where they are exposing abuse, waste, and fraud by people in power. That's like what journalists do right that's why we created the whole idea of journalism so that's what's supposed to be for sure now this woman uh alfreda right yes like what is she so what what has she done that made her so interesting you guys and that when i read it, i'm like oh my god it's just this the, the evil walks amongst us man they walk amongst us um she so we get clued into her at first because there's this very particular moment. So remember earlier in the show, I talked about there was a meeting in Malaysia yeah. of Al Qaeda, yeah. you know, yeah. homies. Right. And they're all Alex Station and the people who are particularly focused on this wing of guys who organize out of a particular house in Yemen. They're all clued into this. These these Alex Station officers are clued into it. They're paying attention to it. And ultimately, like I said, some cable traffic comes back saying, hey, one of these guys has a has a, a U.S. visa to come to the United States. So they start keep, like looking into that guy, keeping tabs on him. And in these this hot couple of days, now there are a handful of FBI agents who are tasked over at Alex Station. So there's this program where like FBI counter-terror guys and CIA counter-terror guys swap people in order to like make sharing information more, you know, more effective. Right. So these so these FBI guys start seeing this and they're like, oh Al-Qaeda dudes with U.S. visas, we should probably send that back to FBI counter-terror HQ in New York because that's going to be our turf. Right. And and then they get this, like, hold off at, at Alex Station. They're like, whoa, 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 hold on. Don't don't send your memo to FBI just yet. Hold on. And they go, okay, we'll wait a second here. And then over the course of time, 
uh, an internal memo gets sent out there at Alex Station saying, all right, information's been shared, don't worry about it. But this one particular FBI agent, Doug Miller, he's like, I really need to share this. I really need to pass this. What's going on? Like, why can't I do it? And he has uh, someone come up to him, uh, a particular CIA officer, Michael Ann Casey, comes up and kind of gives him some lip and is like, listen, this is not a matter for the FBI, blah, blah, blah. And um, Alfredo Bukowski, in reference to this whole situation, later when Congress is investigating 9-11 and gets sort of wind of all this cable traffic uh, around the millennium, they they ask, they're asking, well, who passed it? You sent this internal memo saying it got past the FBI. Who passed it? And there was this rumor about this red-haired woman who worked at Alex Station who had claimed to investigators like that she had personally walked the information down to FBI HQ. She personally walked it in the door and plunked down the file. And then CIA, and or, I'm sorry, the co- congressional investigators went to the FBI building, checked the visitor logs, never found her. So they go back to her and they go, well, you said you walked it there, but we checked the logs and you never went there in that particular time frame. And she goes, oh, well, then I must have faxed it. And so that's how we first clue into this person, because we are hearing about this woman who lied, who claimed to have done it. And then really radically changed her story later. That's our first clue into who so she is. So crazy. Uh, Lying to other... So interesting, dude. We talked to the lady that ran the congressional investigation in 2002 that she essentially told that to. And that woman confirmed that, like, you know, uh, we were asking the same question that you're asking, the same one that anyone, you know, with the brain would ask, which is, like, how do you make the same mistake so many times regarding these two guys? Like, how does this repeat over a year and a half period? But they just, she said, look, I'm not saying what you're alleging isn't true, that they deliberately withheld it. But in order for us to put that into a government document, we need a pretty high bar of evidence. And we didn't have that evidence. They were the first investigation, though. So then, you know, the 9-11 Commission looks into it. Tom Kane, we talked to him, too. He called this particular incident one of the most disturbing parts of their entire report which he'd never said to, to anyone else in the media, but then again, no one else had asked him about that in particular. So I don't know, maybe he was sort of trying to look good to some, you know, some young investigators who'd gotten onto the trail, but you know, uh, so then, so you got the two first investigations into 9-11 and both of the leaders of those investigations are essentially telling us early on, as we start lightly looking into this, you know, in the early aughts uh, that like they were pretty disturbed by this fact around this, person who you wouldn't even know existed duffy you're welcome to continue i just uh wanted to put put out the, the trail of evidence there you know yeah it's it's interesting now like do you if you sit there and they go it's an inside job there's people go 9-11 was an inside job right and i don't know if you guys are into that theory or not but this kind of fits in with that in a weird way. You can isolate it a little bit, but when you take this and you put these other things, you it just seems like they were purposely trying not to get anyone to investigate these guys. I think I don't think either of us would use that particular phrase because I don't think you can boil such a huge thing down to a slogan. Okay. You know, and like and I, I really don't like just our general political and information atmosphere in the United States where everything has to be bite-sized so, like, the goldfish can understand it in, like, a quick second. And that goes both ways. So, like, not, the 9-11 story is fucking complex. And there's 
a lot a lot of ins, a lot of outs, a lot of what have you. And to just say, ah, it's an inside job. It's like that doesn't really get it. I don't think. I I, I think it makes it. I think it makes it too easy for people to then just dismiss as well because it's like, well, that just sounds patently false. And what, but but about- okay, I get that real quick. But do you think the that there is enough evidence to suggest not just in the event itself, but the following events in which particular people involved in the administration, one way or another, enrich themselves beyond. Like, be, I mean, like, there's an old saying, follow the money. And it's just like, maybe I'm not asking you guys to make a declaration right here in any way because that's not really my style. I want you guys, whatever you believe is, is, is fine with me. But is it okay to go that maybe there is something that makes this a little bit more than uh, a bunch of uh, uh, doofus cops missed an opportunity? Yeah, I, I think it's totally legit if somebody wants to think, well, there's enough here. I mean, look, pe- suspicion comes about when you're lied to and you catch people lying to you. And I think this is something we've been saying like a mantra for, you know, over a decade now is sort of like, uh, you know, it, if there if there aren't people on the inside that are bad actors that are doing bad things, then like they're doing a disservice to their own work. By, by lying so frequently to the American public that it becomes legitimate to suggest the most paranoid of suspicions, right? Right. I mean, yeah. you know, very PC way of putting that. You know, the Jersey Widows, our first documentary in 06, followed, you know, these, these four wi- women and mothers whose husbands went to work in the World Trade Towers and never came back. And they had not, you know, they weren't particularly political and they didn't know how to kind of like work the media or lobby Congress, but they were disturbed that nobody was intending to have any kind of a blue ribbon commission into this, you know, an investigation like they'd had around the shuttle disaster and all these tragedies of the past. So they went down and they, they figured out how to work the media and they figured out how to lobby people like John McCain and, uh, and they got the commission called. And one of the things, one of the people they had to fight against the, the hardest was George W. Bush. Uh, two of those widows had voted for George W. Bush. So they were shocked to find that he didn't want an investigation. And if anything made them suspicious, it was the fact that why would you fight so hard to not have an investigation unless there's something there? That was like kind of what they kept putting out there. For That's sure, dude. For point sure. That out how many times have we caught the Trump administration uh, trying to withhold information regarding what they did or didn't know about Russia or Russian interactions so, uh, that sort of blows my mind when I hear people who are very into this kind of subject uh, seem to almost express with regard to Trump, almost no, like they hold Trump to like a completely different criteria where like when Bush co- like tried to block an investigation and covered up and covered up and didn't cooperate, he was clearly guilty of something we all seem to think. Right. When Trump, he's like the good guy fighting the deep state. So I'm just putting that out there for some of your... For some of your, you know, viewers and listeners, I'm not trying to keep going there. But, it's fine, yeah. dude. It's fine. And this, all views are, are, I mean, dude, if someone came on here and defended Trump as a white knight, I, 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 I have a problem with that. Someone defends Obama as a white knight, I have a problem with that. Again, they're all in the same theater stage. I, I, I question everything. I do believe there is a legit beef between Donald Trump and the past administrations. There's something going on that is not status quo. Now, 
I do believe there's similarities between Donald Trump's administration and Bill Clinton's administration. I mean, their presidencies, uh, how how they got elected. You know, you like they both beat an incumbent or a political insider that nobody saw that was going to happen. They won. They got in. Everything was about who they had sex with. They had all these uh, fucking hearings, all these investigations, why they deregulate, 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 deregulate. And that's something we find that people do over time is, um, is uh, look at that, that they, the playbooks they play over and over and over again. You know, 9-11 is in, you know, is very similar to an operation that the CIA wanted to run Why Kennedy was in and that he nullified. Uh, it made it all the way to his, uh, his, his desk and he said no. And the, basically what the CIA wanted to do is they wanted to make a big event in which these college kids were going to go uh, fly to Cuba for this musical event. And they were going to make a big production. They were going to put the whole, uh, all the cameras, the media was going to cover it. And then they were going to put in the air. And then they were secretly going to land it and send another plane up full of explosives and blow it up. This is all documented. It's, it's not conspiracy. It's truth. Um, if I could, I'd like to just jump back to sort of the inside job and the accountability topic real quick. I'm, my studio time is going to be up here in about 10 minutes, so I'm going okay. to get in some, perfect, some final perfect. comments. Go, go, go. To, yeah, yeah, we got to end it but, with you. Um, so one of the people we interviewed for the book is Lawrence Wilkerson, and he, uh, he worked under uh, Colin Powell. And one of the things he told us was he, his impression is that on 9-11, George Bush and Dick Cheney or, you know, were at least from his perspective, scared as shit. That they were going to get impeached and fucking thrown out of office. That they were going to be, you know, like like asleep at the switch while a new fucking Pearl Harbor happened. And they were scared as shit. And then if you look at Bob Mueller had just taken a job as head of the FBI at that time. And it was looking like the FBI had dropped the ball on these terrorist guys. So they were basically saying... You might the FBI might be fucking broken up like you might lose your entire your, your entire bureau. So he's kind of scared as shit. When we talk about like people being scared of the investigation, all of these people had some level of accountability. Shit they didn't do, shit they should have done, shit they lied about, shit they just sat on and did nothing with. Every it's like the game of Clue. Like everyone's got a murder weapon and they're like in the conservatory or some shit and it's right, just like right. they're all like Oh, wow. fuck. An investigation could land on any of us. For sure. So let's all circle the wagons and, you know, and do our best. Like, I'll cover your ass. You're going to cover my ass. You're like, we're all going to be in on this shit together because these Jersey widows are going to fucking hang, have us hanging from a lamppost. So um, I will I will say that there was a lot of fear in there. And, you know, and, and rightly so, because a lot of people had, you know, especially CIA, NSA, people had done things where they had info. They sat on it. They hid it. They intentionally lied. Like after the coal bombing, you had FBI agents, uh, Ali Soufan, Steve Bongart, the people working the investigation into the attack on the USS Cole are basically sending multiple requests to the CIA, to Alex Station saying, hey, part of our investigation has led us to understand that there was a meeting, a planning meeting of sorts in Malaysia with some some of these Al Qaeda guys who seem to have been involved in this attack. Do you know anything about this? And on multiple occasions, they request this information. And each time, the CIA is like, no, no, don't know what you're talking about. And 
you know, so there's mu- multiple points where like people can be like, fuck, if this investigation blows wide open, I'm going down, you're going down, like For we're sure. all going down. For and sure. So I think there was a lot of, of them being very defensive in that regard and just being as mum as possible. And honestly, even some of the people we talked to who seemingly did nothing wrong, people like Mark Rossini, who was one of those FBI guys who'd been tasked to work at the CIA, when he first got approached by congressional investigators and they asked him about the passing of the information from CIA to FBI, he was basically just like, oh, no, I don't remember those cables. Like Even he, he who was intimately involved in trying to get them passed, he knew that, like, the first thing, like, if, if you're the one who opens your mouth and starts telling the truth, everyone else is going to turn on you. For oh, yeah, that was Mark's sure. job. Sure. Yeah, we told, I, that's it, we told Mark to pass For it. Sure. Oh, Mark, he read the cables, and he worked over there. So we told him to take him down. He fucked up. Yep. Get him. You know, so I think there was a lot of just lying and perjuring and all that in that regard. Um, and before I bounce, I'll, I'll, th- I'll throw you guys a little cheese. Um, and Ray's, I'm going to say this and leave and Ray's going to be like, thanks for the fucking grenade, bro. But, um, but, uh, Ray mentioned a meeting earlier, uh, September 4th, Richard Clark sitting in a national security meeting, George Tenet's there. The topic is terrorism. George Tenet at this point, absolutely fucking knows that Kali Omidar and Nawaf Hazmi are in the country. Um, he knows about Zacharias Massawi. He's definitely probably known earlier, but you can prove he knew then. Um, and he mentions nothing. And if we go back to this hypothesis and conjecture, what was the CIA up to? What, what is this operation they're running to supposedly flip hijackers? If this is true, if this is a fact that they were doing this, and they were doing this apparently for about a year and a half or a little longer, why? At what point did they plan to stop this operation? I couldn't at what, agree more. At what, at what point, either... There's, there's basically two options. Like, either one, they're under the impression this operation is going really well. Like, we think we flipped these guys. They're giving us all sorts of good information. Why would we stop now? It's going swimmingly. Or they look at it and go, this really isn't working. These guys haven't flipped. They're not, they're, they're not uh, you know, reporting anything to us, whatever. Which, so, with option two, you'd think, well, they would have shut that down earlier. But with option one, even if it looks like Maybe it's kind of going well. Like, they should have had all the evidence because these guys are linked to all the other guys who'd finally gotten into the country, the other 19, and they're all buying plane tickets for the same day. Like, yeah. there, sh- there should have been an emergency break moment. And if you look at the CIA, like, sort of the, the, the traffic between a particular individual, Tom Wilshire, who then got sent to the, over to work at FBI headquarters, back to his old station at ALEC, there seems to be this thing where he's like, guys, getting a little hot out there. <laughs> guys, Khalid Amir is a major league killer. Maybe we should start looking at that again. And it almost looks like he's trying to like fucking pull the ripcord or get someone back home to pull the ripcord. And they're all like, what are you talking about, bro? What's wrong, bro? <laughs> and so let me just let me just bow out on this. Like, if you want to say there's like some like, where is the conspiracy? Like, where like what's my big remaining question after all this? Why didn't they pull the plug? Because they had like Richard Clark thought they didn't pull the plug because they knew their asses were all on the line. And so his thinking is that 
once the low, low levels of FBI and INS have been made aware of the hijackers in the country, which happened on August 23rd, 2001, that they were going to sit back and ho- hope and pray that they got caught before the fucking bomb went off, right? But even if that's true, like on that date, August 23rd, 2001, George Tenet and all these other higher ups have a foolproof excuse of we learned on this day, the 23rd, they're in the country. They could pass the information. Go get them, boys. They got a couple of weeks to stop this thing. Yeah, they don't. But they don't do it. Yep. So that's and now I'm not saying I'm not saying it was because they wanted the attack to succeed. But yeah. I'm saying that this is where to put the magnifying. glass. Yeah. If you really want to start looking at this shit, we can prove that uh, not maybe prove, but we can lay out a really strong case all the way up to that point. Yeah, and then I agree. Zoom dude. in on that. Put it under the microscope. That's where to look. At that point, one hundred percent. Well, I know you got to bounce, so I appreciate that. And we'll uh, we're gonna end it here, man. It was a great. The, by the way, that operation, the CIA one, was Operation Northwoods. Uh, so if you guys want to check that out and just see the similarities, uh, you guys were great, man. The book, once again. Is called what's the book called? Real quick, it's uh oh yeah. When uh the watchdogs didn't bark, man. Uh, you guys were great, guys. Check out the book. I know I'm gonna read it. Uh, I'm really excited. Just the small parts you sent me, I was fucking enthralled, man. It's good shit. And uh, guys, keep up the good work. We need more people like you, questioning power, questioning all that stuff. And uh, you know. You guys did something. You, na- you nailed it, man. So I hope you, uh, the book sells a lot. You guys have huge success. And hopefully on your next project, you can come back on the show and we can talk about it again. Thank um, you so much for having us. Guys, anytime. What you have done. One more? You have done to talk about these things, and you have. So we really appreciate you, okay? No, anytime, man. We appreciate you. And it was, uh, it was a wonderful podcast. And we, pre- again, appreciate your hard work. And we'll do it again soon. All right, guys. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Take care, everybody.